And welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actress Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilm.com podcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Joe on the NBC original series Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Uh, That role of Joe was one of those roles a lot of times what producers will say when they want you to play a role like Joe is they'll say, you know, Stephen, this is going to recur, probably. And recurring means that it isn't just going to be in one show. It's going to be in several shows. So they put that extra fat fish on the hook to where you are wanting to jump in and play Joe. But I have to say one of the great joys of playing Joe is I was uh, directed by the great Tommy Schlamme. And uh, Tommy Schlamme, besides being a great director and a wonderful guy and a guy who is prone to seasickness, but when I was in high school acting in my first plays, Tommy Schlamme was my main competition at Bel Air High School in Houston, and we competed against each other. And now here he is. He's a big wig director, and here I am playing Joe. <laughs> the definition of, I guess, <laughs> gen- genericness or something, yeah. <laughs> playing a character named no, but it was a great. It was a great part. I think, actually, the part was patterned after being Lorne Michaels. Oh, I think what yes, the idea very cool. Was. So uh, it was very, uh, very entertaining working with all those people. Tommy Shlomi, by the way, for those who don't know, is just like an extremely talented guy who did uh, The West Wing, a lot of episodes of The West Wing. A lot of episodes ER, of The West Wing. ER, Ali McBeal, a bunch of shows that everyone knows. Um, so, fantastic director. Uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, I feel like, unfortunately, did not live up to the promise of its pilot, but uh, I'm sure you, Stephen, did an admirable job as Joe. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think it was a memorable Joe. Yeah, <laughs> of all the Joes, you were one of the most memorable. I was. I can definitely memorable. believe that. So, Stephen, um, we got a lot of responses last week to your podcast about the Dangerous Animals Club, in which you took us back to a time when kids inhabited a world uh, <laughs> that adults just can't get a glimpse into as much when they are grown up. Uh, and Michael from the uh, Tobolowski Files Listener Club. There's no real club. He's just an emailer. Uh, he wrote in and said, Dear Stephen, what a great podcast. This has to be one of my favorites. After a hectic weekend, listening to the Dangerous Animals Club has been a great way to start the week. I'm sometimes surprised by the discrepancies between the secret world that I inhabited as a kid and secret worlds that my kids inhabit. Not that I understand their secret worlds. I say this based on the artifacts available to an outside observer. You know, this episode really touched off uh, a lot of reactions from people. People really enjoyed this one, Stephen. I think, yeah, it was, you know, there, 
so many memories that I had from when I was four, five, six years of age. And a lot of people don't remember that period of time. And when I was writing Dangerous Animals Club, it kind of sparked something else in my head, something more specifically as I was writing it, when I realized how monstrous we were as as young children in our lives. Um, and, and I want to go back to that time a little bit if I could and and talk about something very specific. And that was the way that we as people treat animals. And <laughs> of course, we were pretty terrible. But <clears throat> if you remember, if you think back, if you listen to the Dangerous Animals Club, I think you could, it's safe to say that animals didn't fare too well in our neighborhood during my childhood, which spanned from the early 50s to the mid-1960s. They had a lot to deal with. Now, you have to remember there were no leash laws back then, so dogs were constantly being run over. Everyone owned a gun, so dogs and cats were frequently shot. Some of my neighbors owned multiple animals, so there was animal-on-animal violence. And some of the local animals were victims of all three, like Charlie Harp's dog, Kuki. Kuki was this Chihuahua mix that over the course of a year was shot, run over by a pickup truck, and kicked by a horse, leaving it with three legs and one eye. In the best of times, Kuki was an irritating dog in that it always yapped at you whenever you got out of your car, but his constant series of injuries and his ridiculously slow demise by subtraction seemed to demoralize everybody in our family, especially mom. She would stare out of the patio window and watch him hobble around, yapping and attempting to chase cars driving down the alley. She would shake her head and look at me, and I would never be able to tell if she was going to laugh or cry, but she would just utter the one word, terrible. There was a particularly painful period when Charlie's family got a rooster for some reason, and the rooster would chase Kooky around in the backyard and occasionally peck his rear end. It was very depressing. But as bad as that was, there was a worse scene down the block. A couple houses from us lived the Dodges. Mr. Dodge was a full-blooded Indian, and he performed in movies. He was in westerns. And I guess you could say he was the first real movie star I ever knew. He was able to ride on a horse at full speed while shooting a bow and arrow. And if you think back and you remember all the countless times you saw Indians doing this in westerns, That was Mr. Dodge. I always thought that was impressive. His daughters, Debbie and Donna, were also very talented. They sang and they danced. They did a hobo act. And there was talk that they were going to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. Also very impressive. However, their coexistence with the animal kingdom was deeply misguided. They acquired a dog, a duck, and a horse, which they kept in their small backyard. And these three animals created an ecological nightmare. The horse ate every blade of grass and every leaf on their tree, turning the yard into a moonscape. The duck would often sit on the horse's back to avoid the dog. and The dog was constantly barking at the duck. It became a real-world textbook of the catastrophe theory which states that order can be maintained only to a certain point of stress, and then all bets are off. The rubber band snapped one rainy afternoon after school. The horse was shot by a passing motorist, after which the dog ate the duck. 
The yard was covered in white feathers. It looked like a deleted scene from Saw 3. The police investigated, but to no avail. It was a drive-by. On top of all this brutality, Billy Hart and I were forming the Dangerous Animals Club and making regular forays into the woods with jelly jars, broomsticks, and chemicals in an apparent attempt to bring the animal kingdom to its knees. In the end, the animal kingdom went out, but you can make a case that it was a pretty dangerous place to be an animal in our part of the world. But despite this climate of abuse, I developed a strong attachment to animals perhaps too strong. I remember when I was five, going to preschool, a place called Storybook Playhouse. The teacher called mom up and told her that she had to come to school to talk to me for disciplinary reasons. I was not participating in the tap dance part of the class because I claimed I had turned into a rabbit and rabbits don't dance. It was the first time I used the rabbit defense. The teacher told me I had to join the others, and I recall sitting calmly on the bench in a kind of cat-like pose, resting my knees and elbows, squinching my nose around. She told me once again I could join the others or be punished. I told her I couldn't understand her because she spoke English and rabbits can't talk. When mom arrived, I was hopping around. And to further the transformation, I pulled out a long grocery receipt that I took from the car and I kept in my pocket, and I started eating it. The teacher confronted mom, started talking in urgent low tones. Occasionally, the teacher would point in my direction, and mom would look at me with a concerned expression on her face as she saw me hopping around. I only heard the mumbled words, rabbit, not listening, and sassing me. I knew even at the tender age of five that the only offense that had any traction was sassing. Sassing was so hard to deal with because it was such a gray area. It could only be defined by the grown-up who heard it. Sassing could or could not be a hanging offense depending on dad's mood after work. Mom nodded to the teacher walked over and sat down with me and asked why I wasn't listening. I told her I was a rabbit and couldn't tap dance. Mom said whether or not I danced, I shouldn't be eating the grocery receipts from the AMP because the ink was bad for me. I told her the ink was the best part. Mom shook her head and told me that rabbits don't eat paper. Goats do. And if I kept it up, I could turn into a goat. I looked at mom with fear that I had yet begun another unexpected transformation. I liked being a rabbit. Wasn't so sure about being a goat. Mom never mentioned this episode to dad, so I was off the hook, thankfully, for sassing. But this event started something bigger. I began to dream about rabbits. I imagined I was walking in the woods and came upon two lost bunnies, I told them I had a home hidden in a trunk of a tree. I took them there. I opened up a secret door and brought the rabbits inside. I gave them a bowl of water and a plate of fried chicken. The rabbits thanked me for my kindness and then started gnawing on the drumsticks. I have never been able to adequately explain the rabbit period of my life. I've often heard that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I'm not sure I ever bought that, but I have come to believe that maybe imitation is the sincerest form of regret. 
a lot of the ways we live and react to things in our world come from seeds that have been planted in childhood. I know this is not a new idea. It's an idea that's in just about every country western song ever written. I consider country western music the final repository of a good idea before it's finally dropped by civilization. This is why a good country song can always make you cry. It reminds you of something you never should have forgotten. But the seeds that are planted in us as children are amoral. It is our gift of free will that gives them meaning. Here's an example. The animals in our neighborhood. The seeds of neglect and cruelty were planted in me. But it was my choice as to whether they became the ideas I would embrace or reject. And these seeds that are in us are like the tides. They worked powerfully, but often invisibly, waiting for someone or something to bring them full force into our lives. One of those tides turned for me in 1983. Beth and I got back from a camping trip to Havasu Falls, 70 miles from the Grand Canyon. We were gone for about a week, and we were exhausted. We had never camped before, so we had to buy a tent and sleeping bags and air mattress and canteens and camping utensils and a backpack and flashlights. So basically, we were paying $1,500 a night to sleep on the ground. But we weren't eaten by bears, so I guess we broke even. I had a friend of ours watch the house for a couple of the days while we were gone, and we returned late in the afternoon, very tired, very dirty, very much in need of a bath. We dumped our stuff in the living room, opened up the doors and windows, so happy to be at home, except for the fact that there appeared to be a dead dog in our backyard. Now, besides the awfulness of seeing the body, it was a mystery as to how the dog got there because the yard was completely enclosed. Our suspicions naturally rested on our house sitter. So I called her up and got a confession. She said she was having a party in our absence when a sick, starving dog came through the woods around our home and collapsed in the driveway. She felt sorry for it, to a point. She carried it into the backyard and gave it the remains of a deli plate. The dog tried to eat some roast beef and pastrami. It tried to drink a margarita, but in the end, it was too weak and keeled over. Nobody at the party wanted it and she didn't have the heart to move it. That was a week ago. I nudged the dog with my foot. Nothing. Beth told me I would have to call the city to cart the dog away. I had no idea who to call. I wanted a hot bath. I didn't want to have to deal with a corpse. I went inside to look up the dead dog division of the city of Los Angeles, and while I was thumbing through the yellow pages, I looked outside at the corpse in our backyard, and lo and behold... The corpse was looking back at me. We made eye contact and dropped its head back to the ground. I called to Beth and went out to investigate. She came running and we both took a closer look. We came to the conclusion that whether sick or starving, the dog was near death. And Beth told me to be careful. It wasn't our dog. And if we fed it, it would make it our dog. I said, that's crazy. And Beth said, trust me. It doesn't matter how nasty a dog is, if you feed it, 
it will be yours. That's the rule. Dogs think with their stomachs. You never had a dog. You don't know what you're getting into. Beth was right. I didn't know anything about dogs. I never had a dog except for about 20 minutes when I was seven years old. And this was a pretty grim childhood event. I was in the Dangerous Animals Club. And through my efforts, our family ended up with two pet snails. Mom thought it would be a good strategy for me to occupy my time with a normal animal, so she got dibs on a cocker spaniel puppy. She brought it home. We fed it. We named it Honey. We talked to it in baby talk. We petted it. We poked at its sides ever so gently, causing it to vomit on the kitchen floor. Unfortunately, Dad witnessed this event and said something along the lines of, Get that damn dog out of here. So... Honey was here and gone within 20 minutes, and that includes travel time. That was the extent of my experience in handling a dog. So Beth left me there to ponder while she went to take a bath. To feed or not to feed? This is when I had my first flash of memory to the Dodge's backyard and that starving horse and that poor duck. I couldn't help myself. I went inside to see if we had any food in the fridge, and the only thing in the fridge was a partly leftover turkey sandwich. So I put it on a plate, went out back with a bowl of water and put it beside the dog and went back inside. I took a hot shower. I climbed into bed. Beth was reading. Without looking up from her book, she asked, You feed it? I was caught. I confessed, Turkey sandwich. She said, It's your dog. I got defensive. I said, it's not my dog. Anyway, I don't think the dog is going to live until morning. But how about this? Tomorrow, if it is alive, I'll take it to the vet, let them treat it, and send it out for adoption. They do that sort of thing all the time. Beth was unconvinced. Okay, but that dog is not staying here. That is the dirtiest, ugliest dog I've ever seen. I said, I know, I know. It's horrible. It stinks. I will get rid of it. I turned off the light and went to sleep, praying that the Grim Reaper would make a brief visit to our backyard that night. But the Grim Reaper let me down. The next morning, it was still breathing, so it was off to the vet. I put the dog on my lap and headed down the hill. I looked down at this thing of filthy, matted fur that had the stench of death about it, and I thought, this couldn't be any worse. But once again, I was wrong. The dog groaned and let loose with an explosion of diarrhea. Slight digression. On a scale of driving while distracted, a dog on your lap with diarrhea will edge out steering with your knees while texting any day of the week. I erupted with a torrent of expletives directed at the dog while I was doing figure eights down Laurel Canyon. When I finally gained control of the car, I pulled over, rolled down the windows for air. The dog looked up at me in utter humiliation. I looked back and felt very guilty and calmly said, Don't worry, fella. It's all fine. Ten more minutes and I'll check you in with the nice vet man. And it's a Riva Durchie, baby. I stopped off at a 7-Eleven, got a big cup of water, tried to wash off my pants and the dog. But in the end, I only made it worse. We still stunk and I looked like I'm the one who had the accident. We didn't win any fans in the waiting area of the clinic. Between the stains and the stink, most pet owners gave us a wide berth. I was called up to the reception desk. The nurse asked me what was wrong with my dog. I explained 
it's not my dog. I found it, and it needs to see a doctor. The woman looked at me without a glimmer of humor or hope and said, what's your dog's name? I explained again. It's not my dog, so I don't know its name. It may not even have a name. And the nurse said, for treatment, we need to know the name of your dog. I became more intense. I said, it's not my dog. She said, well, whose dog is it? I said, I have no idea. She said, well, we can't see your dog unless you own it, and it has a name. There was something Kafka-esque about the bureaucratic cloud that was hovering over the pet clinic, but I had something that Gregor Samsa didn't have. I had a MasterCard. And that seemed to work wonders with the dog registration process. The nurse ran the card through the machine and said, there you go, but I will need to know the name of your dog. I gave in and said, Pooch. She smiled and looked at my credit card. Pooch Tobolowski. I said, yes. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. She took the dog away from me, made a face of sheer revulsion, and said they would have to clean the dog before the doctor saw it, so I would be billed for a bath as well. I left the dog in their competent hands and drove home with the windows rolled down, thinking I would probably have to sell the car and burn my clothes. At home, I jumped in the shower, and Beth came in and said I had a phone call. It was the vet, and they wanted to talk to me about Pooch Tobolowski. Beth was not pleased. I stepped out of the shower, wrapped a towel around my waist. I ran to the phone with Beth calling to me, I told you if you fed that dog, you would own it. The doctor explained that Pooch would need to be on an IV for 10 days, that they needed to put her on vitamin therapy. She was so dirty they couldn't wash her, they would have to shave her. And that's when they discovered that she was covered with small tumors that would have to be removed. The doctor told me I was looking at several hundred dollars, and even at that he couldn't guarantee the dog would live. He wanted to know what my decision was. Treat the pooch or put her down. I must say that the ghost of Kuki the Chihuahua hobbled in front of me momentarily, and I was uncertain of the dividing line between kind and cruel. But in the end, I push aside any reasoned debate and just said, treat her. Ten days later, I went back to the vet. I signed the credit card bill for $600. The nurse called back for Pooch Tobolowski. I gasped when after a few minutes, the assistant came out with a completely shaved dog covered with scars and stitches from numerous surgeries. She looked like a dog from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre people. But when she saw me, she leapt from the assistant's arm and ran helter-skelter across the floor of the waiting room, jumped into my lap, and she started licking my face furiously and crying. At that point, I knew for better or for worse, she was my dog. The doctor came out and told me that she couldn't eat dog food, so I would have to cook a mixture of sautéed hamburger, egg, and rice five times a day. She should eat it. I said if she didn't, I would. The vet wanted to see her again in two weeks. We got back to the house, and Pooch was ecstatic. She was home. She dashed across the backyard and barked at the invisible squirrel in the tree. Beth heard us and came outside, she saw Pooch's buzz cut intermingled with the green antibacterial ointment and fresh stitches and started laughing. Oh, my God. Now she really is the most hideous dog on earth. 
I said half-heartedly, Beth, you know, we can always take her back to the clinic for their pet adoption day. And Beth started laughing even harder. And she said, are you kidding? (laughs) No one in their right mind would want this dog. It's horrible. It's like a Frankenstein dog. Pooch ran over to Beth and almost knocked her down. She started licking Beth furiously. Beth fell on her back in the grass laughing, and Pooch jumped on her and continued with the affection offensive. If nothing else, Pooch was the embodiment of the joy of being alive, and i got to admit, that's pretty infectious. The next week, I spent most of my waking hours in the kitchen cooking rice and simmering hamburger. This was dog food that could have won Iron Chef America. Pooch would watch me longingly through the back door. I asked Beth if she thought we could bring Pooch inside. Beth explained that there are two kinds of dogs, outdoor dogs and indoor dogs, and Pooch was definitely an outdoor dog. That proclamation lasted about three hours. Pooch snuck in behind me during one of my many trances from the kitchen to the dog bowl. Once inside, Pooch ran roughshod over everything, barking, jumping on furniture, knocking things over. Beth said now that the dog had come into the house, we would have to teach it behavioral rules. And the only way to do this was with a squirt bottle. So I went down to the gardening store and I asked the woman if she had anything I could use on a dog. She gave me a bottle that had the ability to shoot several different sprays ranging from a fine mist to a long-range stream. I set the bottle for stun and came home, filled it with water, and waited for the first infraction, which came within about 60 seconds. Pooch started barking at the invisible squirrel in the backyard. She started leaping up against the back window in response to absolutely nothing. So I shot the dog with the spray bottle. She stopped. She turned and looked at me. I shot her again. She loved it. She thought I had come up with a novel method of hydration, and she came up to me for an occasional drink. After 10 days, it was time to go back to the clinic to get the pooch's stitches removed and for a follow-up visit with the doctor. I waited for about 20 minutes. The vet came out to see me, and he had a strange look on his face. He said, Stephen, can you come back to my office? I felt uneasy. I didn't even know veterinarians had offices. I walked back to a little room with a desk and some textbooks, family photos, and a poster on the wall of the life cycle of the tapeworm. The doctor went right to his x-ray viewer, turned it on, and there was a strange image there that I assumed was a dog. The doctor took his pen out and used it as a pointer and began, Stephen, I'm sorry, I need to show you why your dog is going to die. What? Die? My, my brain went blank. I heard his words, but I couldn't feel anything. He said that the malnutrition had kept her spine from developing as it should have, and one of her discs was swelling, and sooner or later the disc would create enough pressure to cripple her and eventually kill her. I, I said, how long? The doctor looked very somber as he uttered soon. Eight weeks, ten weeks. All you can do is keep the pooch comfortable. Try to keep her calm. Come back in a couple of months. If she's in any pain, we could put her down. I I was in shock. I shook his hand. I collected the dog and started to drive home. 
She was in my lap. I rolled down the window so she could stick her head out into the breeze, which I had already learned was one of her absolute favorite things to do. And the wind blew back her ratty-looking bangs, and she stuck out her tongue so that it was flapping in the wind. And I broke down and started to cry. I pulled the car over, much to Pooch's surprise, and I wailed like I had never done in my life. And that is also when I knew that she was my dog. After about three minutes, I collected myself and I continued home. I carefully carried the pooch out of the car so she wouldn't be bounding over to Beth. I placed her on the ground. She ran over to the tree, yes, started barking at the invisible squirrel. Beth asked how she was. I sat down in the yard and told her the sad story of our dog. And Beth began to cry. She held on to me for comfort. The pooch ran joyously around us, having no idea what the source of our grief was. I've noticed in life that even the most casual relationship with an animal is capable of eliciting powerful emotions. You can know a person for years and not be moved by them. But their cat, that's another story. We took a breath. We got up. We went inside. We left the door open so Pooch could follow. We walked back to the bedroom with Pooch trotting behind. We opened the door to the dog-free zone. Beth lifted Pooch up and set her on the bed. Pooch couldn't believe her good fortune. She spun around in circles, snuggled down between us. Beth said if she only has a few weeks with us, she should be happy. The next morning, I decided in her remaining time, Pooch should see the world. And every morning, we went off in a different direction, exploring the wilds of the Hollywood Hills. At night, Pooch nuzzled in between Beth and myself. In fact, she took over the entire bed. We slept on the periphery. But every time we felt like we were going to fall off the edge, we thought of Pooch's final days, and her comfort came first. We neared the date of the final visit to the vet. That day, we walked from the top of the mountain to the very bottom. We sat by a creek, and I fed Pooch Pooch burgers, and then we shared a drink from a canteen. We walked back up the mountain. I told Beth we were leaving for the doctor, and she hugged me. She kissed Pooch, and Pooch and I headed off for the clinic. We arrived, and our doctor was waiting for us. I handed over the Pooch. He said he would check her out. He would get me before he did anything drastic. My dear friend Bob told me once that we spend the first part of our life choosing who we want to live with, and we spend the last half choosing who we want to die with. I felt that for whatever reason, the pooch found me. She gave me the opportunity of making that dream I had when I was a little boy, the dream with the rabbits, come true. She was lost. We brought her into our secret home in the woods. I gave her water and a turkey sandwich, and she thanked me. My rabbit reverie was interrupted by the doctor. He came out looking very concerned, and he asked me to come back with him. We went back to the office, and he pointed to Pooch's x-rays. And he said, I can't explain it. The Pooch is cured. The spine is normal. The discs are normal. I've never seen anything like this. Again, I was numb, and I couldn't comprehend what I was hearing. What, she's going to live? He said, that's right. Her blood work is perfect. Her muscles are no longer atrophied. Whatever you did, you did it right. 
and I thought for a moment, and then it hit me. Good God, we walked every day, all the time, up and down hills. He said, well, all that exercise did it. She's very lucky she found you. I said, well, can I take her home? He smiled. Yeah, take her home. She's all yours. We rode home in the car with the windows down and the wind tousling her ears and tongue. We got home and I told Beth the news. Beth was overjoyed and we hugged each other in triumph until we realized that now we had a dog with absolutely no discipline at all who slept in the middle of the bed. But there was nothing to be done but grab the squirt bottle in case she got thirsty at night and be grateful that she was still with us and would continue to be with us for a long, long time. You're sweet and shy. That was It's Not My Dog, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find your work on the internet this week? Yes, absolutely. You could certainly uh, email me, and I've gotten some incredible emails this week at stephentobolowsky at gmail.com. And that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W, S-K-Y at gmail.com and also at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Very cool. You can also find every single episode of the Tobolowsky Files at TobolowskyFiles.com. You can also find it in iTunes. So check that out and feel free to leave a review for us if you have a chance. You can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. You can also email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Um, also, I want to point out that you can find emails and letters and other assorted stories by Tobolowsky Files listeners at tobolowsky.tumblr.com. That's tobolowsky.tumblr.com. I also want to give out a, a shout out to a couple of actors who are listening to this show, specifically uh, Jeff Kanata and uh, Dan Ekman, both of whom have recently had their brush with acting. Uh, Jeff is actually, I believe, in a play right now, so we wish him the best of luck there. But uh, thank you guys for listening and for writing in with your stories, or in Jeff's case, just telling me about uh, working on that play. We wish them the best of luck. Uh, so yeah, the, uh, check out Stephen's stories on actors, uh, because, I, I mean, Stephen, you know this. Like This is a... This a show has become kind of a, a, a thing where, where actors will listen to it to get advice, and they'll write to you for advice as well about what they should That's be doing. That's absolutely true, and, and, I, and it also stirs up a lot of the pot for me to do podcasts on various show business things. I, I have to bring up one event that happened this week, David, uh-huh. I, as a shout-out, too. I was in uh, – there's a coffee shop called Starbucks. Yeah. We have it here in California. And uh, I was about to go teach my uh, improv class on Sunday morning, and some guy with his daughter yelled out, Hey, Tobo! And I turned around, and he yelled across the entire parking lot, Man, thanks for the podcasts. 
And this was the first public display of affection uh, given to me for the podcast. I mean, this was extremely public, and <laughs> it embarrassed maybe, me. Maybe but too I, public. I, I was very proud. I was very proud that uh, to be noticed for the podcast at a Starbucks. Excellent. Well, uh, it's going to be the first of what I'm sure will be many uh, such notices. But uh, in, in, in any case, keep spreading the word of the Tobolowski Files. Tell your friends to go to TobolowskiFiles.com and check out the show. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thank you guys for tuning in, and have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.